0: Hi, uh, this is Lindsey Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week in Review podcast on Friday, August the 3rd. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about the term limit ballot measure, which qualified for the ballot today, differences emerging among Leroc mayoral candidates, and the unflattering Rock connection in Brett Kavanaugh's past. I'm joined, as usual, by Max Brantley. Hello. So, uh, just uh, a little while ago, the Secretary of State's office said that a proposal to roll back the term limits provision of the Arkansas Constitution has enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. Yeah, they
1: made it. This was a two-year effort, and it came in over the hump at the last minute with some a bunch of money sent in by the National Term Limits Organization to hire canvassers. But they got it done, and, I mean, the news is—now, is and is there could still be, I don't know— somebody could emerge and try and do a lawsuit to challenge signatures. And as yet, nobody like that, that takes money. And I, I don't know, I, I don't expect that, but I don't know. But, uh, it presents some really interesting stuff. You know, this is, uh, the current term limit says you can serve 16 years in the legislature, Either in one house or the other, a combination of the two. There's a little quirk that two-year Senate terms that are that happen to half the Senate every 10 years don't count. So there's some people that can serve longer than 16 years in the Senate. Uh, Cecile Bledsoe's running for 20 years now. Jason Rapert, God help us all, could serve in the Senate 22 years. And this does illustrate why this term limits provision that we now have that was put on the ballot in 2014 as a quote term limits amendment, unquote, but actually loosened the previous provision is it was a significant change before you could serve six years in the house and eight years in the Senate or total of 14 years. But now you can do the 16 years in a single house and you can become extremely powerful. And, uh, and 16 years is a generation. I mean, that's that's not a lifetime tenure, but it's a long time. And it's hard to beat an incumbent. And so when you're looking at 16 years in the Senate, you can get a lot done. Uh, I think somebody, uh, Bill Stovall, former House Speaker, did some figuring and figured, I think, if the current legislature is all reelected long-term people and this amendment does pass, and it takes effect next year. Then it would come into play immediately in two years in the election of two thousand twenty. And he figures something like eighty people out of one hundred and thirty-five would leave. You know, I, I'm I'm a hypocrite here. I, I mean, I for years argued against term limits and said we have the election and that's term limits. Now I, I have said and do think that. Our elections favor incumbents, and there's some things we could do about campaign finance that would level the playing field. Uh, we should not allow incumbents to run with their titles on the ballot, which gives them an, a built-in edge, too. That's something else we could do. But I have to say, I'm, I'm now in the position of those who favored term limits back when they wanted to get rid of these embedded, sclerotic, you know, autocratic legislatures and throw all this bunch out.
0: Okay. Not, is that because okay. Republicans are in control now?
1: Probably, uh, you know. I mean, I think that's that's a factor, certainly. Uh, but it's, and also it's a factor of the other things they've done with this power is they've increased by constitutional amendment and law the legislature's power over the executive branch. They've put on the ballot for this year, issue one, the, it's the tort reform amendment, but it's much more. They'd stripped the Supreme Court of court rulemaking authority. This legislature is just too powerful. And, and this, this it seems to me, would be a way to take back some of the power that they've they've piled up to the detriment of the state.
0: It also, as Jay Barth pointed out in a column this week, would uh, you know give more power to lobbyists, would increase the power of as the if, executive branch. It, it, as
1: if they, well, number one, our, our executive branch is too weak. Number two, uh, if they don't think the lobbyists don't have huge power now, they're crazy. And number three, this argument about, and, and, and and I've said the same argument before, institutional memory and legislative skills. If that's so great, how did we have the gift scandal? I mean, if that's so great, how did we slip this slimy amendment onto the ballot in 2014 that expanded term limits while calling it a reduction in term limits? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm not so sure. The, the other thing that the legislature did is they added annual sessions a few years back, this same bunch. This, this, this same Republican bunch that's responsible for all this accretion of legislative power also started annual sessions, and, and they also provided a way for them to get a 150% pay raise plus tax-free per diem that far exceeds what their actual expenses are. What we've got out there is a big class of people who this has become a full-time job. Probably a better job than they've ever had in terms of pay. And and they get treated treated like little demigods out there. And they really like it. I mean, they really like being big shots out there and drawing nice money for not doing much. (coughs) And when the Constitution was written in 1874, it was anticipated it was going to be a citizen legislature and a part-time thing and people would take the the wagon home and farm most of the time and every two years they'd meet and deal with the problems of the state in a sixty day session. Uh you know, the the annual physical session is a complete waste of time. It's of no benefit whatsoever except for making money for legislators and letting them come down here and pal around with the lobbyists. I you know, I just it's a they're corrupt, they're self interested. Uh it's just I, I mean yeah, I mean I'm I'm kind of in a throw the bums out mood.
0: Probably the voters are too. Wouldn't you have
1: to? Well, you're gonna guess? Uh, that's gonna, and that's an interesting question. In every, in two past elections, all you had to do was say the words "term limits" and they voted for it. We're already hearing from—I mean, legislators are all whining pitifully about this because they like it out there; they don't want to leave. And lobbyists are whining about it pitifully, saying these same things Jay Barth is saying: "Is oh, you just don't understand. You know, this just be terrible to do this." And when a lobbyist says something to be terrible, that's from my point of view a reason to vote for it, frankly. But uh, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I do—I I do think there is still the principled argument that we have elections and who am I to tell people how to vote in their own district? If that's, if they choose to elect Jason Rapert, well, that's their decision. And that's a principled argument. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, I I think it does overlook some structural advantages to incumbency that, that puts somewhat the lie that somehow this is a wholly democratic decision, but, 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 but that's a fact. But, uh, you know, I just don't know. Perhaps this message will get out. Perhaps this will be seen as I think the best thing that the Republicans could do was pitch this as some Democratic idea and, and get people to vote by party label. doesn't work, though. This, is, this has always been the work of Republicans and Libertarians, the term limits movement. It's never been associated with Democrats. In fact, it was designed to, to upend Democratic majorities at both the state and national level and has been very successful. And so they're not going to be able to play that game on this and I, but I'm sure there's somebody out there thinking of some talking point to try and make this become a popular thing to have people serve longer. I mean, in, in truth about term limits, very few people voted for them because they didn't like their own legislator. I mean, they typically would say, "Well, yeah, I like Dale Bumpers, but I just don't like all the rest of those guys." Right. And so and so that that maybe what you do is you get all of them to go out there and say, if you like me, you got to beat this and put their own popularity on the line. Maybe, that, maybe that's how you do it. I don't know.
0: What's the status of the other uh, petitions well, out there? Well,
1: the, uh, <clears throat> the minimum wage drive, which is an initiated act, turned in more than enough signatures today to qualify, but they still have to be checked. Their approval rate of signatures has been two-thirds, and they've got three times as many signatures than they need. So I think minimum wage will make it. That's going to raise the state minimum wage from eight fifty now to $11 by the beginning of 2021.
0: And what, what do you think about chances of that? There's going to be some big money lined up against it, probably. Well,
1: the the big money is going to be spending a lot of its money on Issue 1, the, the limit on lawsuits and the change in court power. If it the, doesn't get tossed. The, the chamber ballot. is already, if it doesn't get tossed, although I'll be surprised, And although the lawsuit continues, uh, but the chamber's already said it opposes it and big business will oppose it and they will spend some money. I'm sure the notion of an increase in the minimum wage has generally been a popular thing. Uh, although Arkansas sometimes votes contrary to its interest on these kinds of things, union measures being one good example. Uh, So I just don't know. I mean, the polls tend to show this is a popular thing everywhere. And our our proposal, a three-year phase-in up to $11 an hour, isn't like Seattle going instantly to $15 an hour. And, And Walmart already pays at this rate or higher, and they're the biggest employer in the state after the government, I think. And so... I mean, it's not—it's not really a reach, and it, it does have that working in its favor. But who knows? Then they're still counting signatures on the uh, proposal to expand casino gambling to add two new casinos—one in Jefferson and one in Pope County—and then to solidify the legality of the existing casinos at Oakland and Southland Park. So we might have—you know—you got that, and you got issue one, and uh, it seems like—is there one other? structural legislative amendment that I've forgotten. It sticks in my mind that there might be a voter ID, voter ID. Oh yeah. Voter ID. (laughs) So there'll be that. So there'll be a mess of things that don't necessarily have a unifying vote for all of them, vote against all of them kind of theme. There'll be different constituencies for all of them. I think on balance, progressive groups hope that the minimum wage will will be a vote getter and bring out some some support for well Democratic candidates, frankly. Um casinos, who knows, you know, I issue one, tort reform, is that gonna be a vote mover? I, I kinda doubt it. I mean there's gonna be a crazy amount of money spent on it though. So hard to say. And then then after that, uh will the governor's race draw a lot of voters. I mean, we've got a contested governor's race, but hard to, hard to see that is really moving a lot of people. There's some good legislative races on the local level that in, in, in some localities and particularly in Northwest Arkansas, which are the two biggest counties now outside of Pulaski, uh, a raft of contested legislative races with some 10 female candidates on the democratic side, We'll see. I mean, there's a strong Moms Demand movement up there. There's some real enthusiasm for these candidates. Will that turn something out? Don't know, but at least it's something.
0: All right, well, let's pause before we move on to our next topic and put a quick plug in for some other podcasts on the Arkansas Times Podcast Network. Uh, Rock the Culture, uh, Antoine Phillips' weekly look at Black Life in Little Rock, has not one but two episodes this week. They've got their regular regular episode and then a special one they did last night where they interviewed Stacey Abrams, who's the Democratic nominee for governor in Georgia, uh, who seems to have the best chance to become the first black governor, black female governor. And she just
1: has a great story. I don't know if she talks about it on the podcast, but she just bought, brought people to tears at the Democratic get-together last night with stories of her childhood amazing stuff
0: yeah so check that out and matt price uh with the conversation he, he's got an interview with antoine and charles uh, recently but he also has a long interview with baker karras the mayoral candidate who we're about to talk about that's worth checking out uh and and make sure you check out no small talk an entertainment podcast and out in arkansas the lgbt one as well so moving on, some differences emerged on the I-30 project, schools, and city board governance among the four announced candidates for Little Rock Mayor in a forum this week sponsored by St. Mark Baptist and Fox 16.
1: Yeah, and I'm sorry that I haven't gone through and listened to every minute of it yet because I think there's some points that were missed that, um, beyond those that have been written about in the Democrat Gazette and on our blog, but, but they covered with four candidates it becomes difficult because they're four people and they, everybody's got to answer. But boy, they covered a lot of ground in an hour on some very specific questions and some differences emerged. Uh, First, there's the 30 Crossing project, the freeway expansion through downtown Little Rock. Uh, Frank Scott is for it. Vince Tolliver and Warwick Saban are are against it in the form it's now in. And Baker Curris kind of took a position that, well, there's not much we can do about it anyway and that there are better ways to invest our effort. I mean, I've taken the view that I think the city needs to fight, yes, I, I I think you have to acknowledge that the facts being what they are, that this project is going to eventually go through more like it is than less like it is, but that doesn't mean you don't stop fighting to make it as best as it possibly can be, particularly since it's going to have such a demonstrably damaging effect on the city of Little Rock, and, and contributes to a policy that encourages suburban growth to the detriment of Little Rock, and I, I think it's mayors ought to be talking about that. Then there is the, the question of at-large city directors, whether we should continue to have three members of the city board elected at-large citywide. And I think, uh, how did this, it was split. I'm now forgetting precisely.
0: I think Scott and Sabon were both. Against the continuance of our City. Yes, hard I think Scott and and, Curris, Saban, and, and Curris
1: again said he thought he hadn't yet seen demonstration that it had been bad for the city, and to which I say, well, they're nearly always white in a city that's majority black and brown, and that's worth considering. Now, I think I think there was room to answer that question better, and I, I think you know Baker really on that question sounded like an establishment candidate because the establishment strongly favors retaining the three at-large directors. The proposal that was just beaten by the board was not a not a good proposal. That was Irma Hendricks' proposal to just do away with the three at-large directors. The reason being is that we're set up, the current city government is set up under a state statute precisely for this form of strong mayor, blended hybrid government. And if I happen to favor getting rid of at-large director seats and going to a mayor, council, government. But that's that's a multi-part process. That's not just merely stripping the at-large directors. And it would probably require a change in state law to enable us to move from what we now have to a mayor, council. And so I think there was a place to say, I know there are legitimate concerns about the way we do this and that certainly that there's there's a feeling it it discourages diversity on the board and there perhaps... Things we, and, he, and Baker Curse did say we need, he's open to looking at our form, and I think that's a fair answer, but but it was just kind of a status quo thing, so that so that was that was another thing,
0: and schools,
1: and then schools, and I this got. Not wholly reported, I think it turned out. The Democrat Gazette account said that, well, three said they favored local control. And Baker Curtis responded, well, if our neighborhoods get better, our schools will get better. Well, the question wasn't specifically, are you for or against return of local control? It was about what city government can do about the schools. And smartly, three candidates first said, we need to take our schools back. You know, Baker Curris is somebody who got fired for trying to do a good job running the school district as a superintendent, served on the school board. There just isn't any doubt about where his heart is about public schools. And what it was later explained was, is that the question wasn't a specific question, but a general question. But politically, he blew it. He, sh- he could have said, well, yeah, of course I'm for returning local control, because he said that on the record in our podcast, among other places, uh, but he should have said, but that's the the question is, is what we got to look at it more holistically. And it so happens on his website, he has this enormous position paper that's a result of a bunch of personal work he's done going around town on his bicycle, reviewing census tracks and decaying housing, and has a lot of ideas about neighborhood revitalization. And yes, neighborhood revitalization will do a lot for revitalizing schools, and so I mean he is a smart, thoughtful guy who's thought this through, but perhaps not as politically savvy as he needs to be, because his answer left him open to interpretation that he wasn't on board on return to local control, which he is, but but you gotta sound right. So
0: Right. And so the-
1: there was so there was that and, and, and I know there was at least one other question of interest that I saw his answer to quoted and that was the question about city residency for police and firefighters and, I don't know, ambulance drivers, too. And I think he was quoted, Baker Curse was quoted as saying, well, you know, it's it's kind of a dangerous thing to start telling ambulance drivers and firefighters and police where to live. And, I, and yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. And I, I happen, although I've long been a critic of, our situation here. I I'm not among the group that thinks it's a good idea to require city residency, but new figures that came out this week showed that two thirds of the Little Rock police force do not live in the city of Little Rock and 80% of the white officers do not live in the city of Little Rock. And you simply can't explain this away by housing costs. Uh, this, this is a statement about the livability of our city when the people we pay to, rep- to protect us don't want to live here. And at a minimum, it's time to stop this incredibly offensive practice of giving people free transportation in the form of city police cars to drive home to Cabot. It's nuts. If we had a policy that said you're within 15 minutes of the city whether you live in it or not you can have a car that'd be enough that'd be one thing but th- this thing about paying people to drive an hour home is crazy it's nuts it's offensive
0: well and that's another question where there are a lot of different ways to answer it including that i mean you talk about right, uh, you right, talk right, about right, we can right. increase incentives <laughs> to
1: and i think you could stand up and say that you know requiring residency because it's kind of an autocratic kind of thing i mean i think a lot of people don't like that sort of telling people how they have to live but but good grief! I mean, d- put yourself in the shoes of a black man and being stopped on the streets of Little Rock by a white cop who has sent a pretty clear signal that he doesn't like the city very much. And why does he not like this city? Could it be because of the composition, racial composition of it, because of the crime, whatever? I, I, I just, well, I just think we're not we're we're not grappling with this issue, and it's and it's an issue.
0: So, any other thoughts about the the mayoral race and and how it's shaping up?
1: Well, yeah, I'm beginning to have some thoughts about it, and they're not fully formed. But you know, I think what we've got is two younger candidates, in Frank Scott and Mark Saban, kind of say it's time for fresh voices. Oddly enough, Frank Scott sounds in many ways, more like an establishment voice. He was on the Highway Commission. Uh, he he made a point, I saw, of saying, well, you know, I, I, I want to keep the Chamber of Commerce on board as an advisor, but they won't be the boss of me. Well, that's because there's a great fear they will exactly be the boss of me. A lot of his money comes from highway contractors who are the big financial force in the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, he but he will be. He is black this is a city with a 40% black voter population that tends to vote in racially identifiable patterns, although they don't tend to vote in step with their size in the community. They undervote as a percentage of the vote. And so inevitably, uh, he's going to have some of that. We don't have... You know, you get the feeling that Baker Curris has sort of established himself as sort of the white establishment candidate after a fashion. I mean, that's... I think that's unfair to Baker. knowing him as I do. I think he's he's not real easy to pigeonhole. But certainly, the the posturing in the campaign is, is to this point left that impression with some people.
0: Well, maybe he's possibly he's pivoted that way. We don't
1: and, know. And no, I don't know. I don't no. know. I mean, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. But I mean, I certainly think where he stands at this moment, it's easy for people to draw that conclusion. And and I I do think this is a change election. And I, I think Baker Karras could be a change guy. I think he'd be more vigorous as a mayor than what we've seen under Mark Stodola, and has some strong ideas about the way City Hall works, including I think some flaws in the mayor the mayor administrative system. But uh I it's I don't know if he can carry that off with the voters. I, boy I noticed today to let checking campaign money Ork Saban has got a pile of money. I mean, he's raised a quarter of a million dollars and has about three-fourths of it still on hand. And it's and raised it in a, a kind of an interesting, broad sort of sector, all parts of the city, kind of Republican, Democrat, uh, an interesting cross-section. So I don't know. I mean, but, you know, we really haven't gotten heavily into the ad messaging yet. And uh, that's, I, 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 I think, these guys were pretty... Well behaved at this forum this week, and and I think all of them have the potential for getting fired up. I mean, I know Warwick, Saban, and Baker, Curris both can can get testy, <laughs> and so if 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 the attacks come, and inevitably in a political campaign, you score points. With comparative advertising, call it negative if you want, but I don't think in the end this this election is necessarily going to be run by those who present the most positive vision. I mean, they're going to have to draw some comparisons, and so it might get interesting.
0: Yeah. Stay tuned. Finally, and quickly, the Washington Post recounts an unflattering chapter in Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's past. That's his push to prolong the tragedy of the death of Bill Clinton aide Vince Foster, the literary lawyer who joined the Clintons in Washington in 1993.
1: Well, the the Post dug up from the National Archives uh, a memorandum that was written by Kavanaugh during the Whitewater investigation. He was 30 years old. And at this point, there had already been three different conclusions and one by Robert Fisk, a highly respected federal prosecutor, that Vince Foster, who was under tremendous pressure and 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 suffering from depression had committed suicide but there were right-wingers and just some thoroughly discredited kind of right-wing sources pressing that this was somehow a murder and somehow tied into larger Clinton conspiracies and Kavanaugh argued that we just got to investigate this again because of these unfounded allegations and good grief they investigated for three years spent two million dollars with him whooping it up all the way through, even though people who work with him said early on, he pretty well had decided that, yeah, he probably did commit suicide, but didn't stop him from just fanning the flames of this. And that contributed, of course, to now sort of a perpetual belief on some people's part, including Donald Trump, who brought it up during his presidential campaign that somehow Vince Foster wasn't just a terribly sad and tragic case. So Brett Kavanaugh, who's people try to depict as a nice guy as really a partisan hack he has an amiable demeanor but but he was willing to go down as low and, and dirty as you had to go to to feed this kind of political crap even if it meant just heaping abuse on a, a family a bereaved family i i think it's a low mark for him but 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 he also was part of the torture memo under the bush administration uh he's been part of a lot of other very bad things and 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 it's I'm afraid he's going to be confirmed, and we will we will pay for it, but uh he had his little rock time, and it's not it's not something he should be proud of now today, of course, he says these special prosecutor investigations of presidents are probably a bad thing. I think he thinks they means they're a bad thing when it's Republican presidents, not necessarily when they're democratic presidents.
0: Okay, let's leave it there and move on to endorsements. What do you got this week? Well,
1: I keep forgetting this thing. I'm going to tell you. It's a weird story, kind of. I probably should save my time on this. But, oh, what is this? I can't even see it on my phone anymore. But I needed something to read. I ran out of reading material, so I picked up Kindle and read a book my wife had bought. I started reading a book my wife had bought, and I thought it was a novel. And I'm about three-fourths of the way through it, and it's pretty good. And so I decided to look up a review of it and uh, just to see what was said about it and why she bought it in the first one was called The Heart is a Shifting Sea and it's a story of three married couples in India and their different marriages in the Indian background, you know, of ones in a range marriage, which is very traditional in India now. Well, I found out this is not a novel at all. It's, it's a novelistic retelling of a incredibly intense piece of repertorial work about three couples that live in Mumbai. And I happen to be interested in India and happen to have just been to Mumbai. And it's a really evocative retelling of all sorts of places that I went on this trip. And she. so it's interesting in that light. It's interesting in writing about the religious and cultural traditions of India, which just couldn't be more different than our own. But it's kind of amazing that these are real people who opened up and an into their lives and talking about some really, I mean, text messages with boyfriends and I mean just kind of all kinds of crazy stuff. It's by a woman named Elizabeth Flock, and anyway, I've just gotten kind of sucked into it. Just it's kind of Bollywoodish, and it's probably chick lit probably but I'm, just, I'm just a chick I'm just kind of a chick lit kind of guy I guess I suppose
0: alright that's why people listen to this podcast yeah, just for yeah. those kind of recommendations I uh, in the past have endorsed one of my favorite labels Drag City because it it's something that I lost for a while because it wasn't on any of the streaming services and that's really the only way I listen to music it came to Spotify or maybe to Apple Music first then to Spotify earlier this year and uh, I've been digging it, but they slowly have been releasing Bonnie Prince ba- Bonnie Prince <clears> Billy, <throat> Billy albums for whatever reason, and so I've I've been especially excited about that and one in particular. It's Bonnie Prince Billy's "Sings Greatest Palace Music." It was sort of a greatest hits uh, of sorts that he put out in two thousand and four where he went to Nashville and, and recorded, re-recorded a lot of his songs with Nashville Session musicians, including people like Pig Hargis and Andrew Bird. And it was widely panned at the time because uh, Bonnie Prince Billy's music is very stripped down, um, and this was kind of more ornate, traditional Nashville sound. But I love it. It's, it's a, a really fun lesson, and there are some songs that that just are brilliant on it, especially uh, No More Aware Course Blues. Check it out. It's on I'll Spotify. It. All right. Thanks for listening. Subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast service. Give us a rating and review. It helps people find us. And check out our other podcasts. We'll be back next week. Say you later.